You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. Welcome to the show. The interview subject that I have coming up for you is one of the greatest extreme metal drummers of all time, Mr. Nick Barker. The reason I was inspired to reach out to Nick to gauge his interest in appearing on the podcast is because I think, as many of you long-time listeners will know, that Cruelty and the Beast... The album released in 1998 by Cradle of Filth is one of the greatest albums ever recorded. It certainly had a colossal impact on my own life. So we talk all about the album and a bunch of other stuff too, relating to Nick's career and life in general. This is one of those episodes, people, so whatever you're doing, I hope you're relaxed, get something to drink or perhaps something to smoke and just enjoy because here he is, Drum Leviathan. Mr. Nick Barker. Hello. Nick, how are you going? How's it going, mate? You all right? Yeah, do, doing pretty well. It's uh, it's a stinking fucking hot day. Excuse my language over here, though, mate, at the moment, because we've just had two days of rain. So it's about 90% humidity and about 30 degrees at the moment. So uh, I'm glad I'm in air conditioning, put it that way. Yeah. I, uh, I remember it there up, up that... That neck of the woods, to the tropics, yeah, it was, can be pretty brutal. I was actually very impressed that you actually referred to Brisbane as Brizzy during our conversations over um, Instagram Messenger, and only someone who'd been here a few times would do that, know to do that, actually. So you, you've clearly uh, spent some time in Australia. Yeah, I, I love Australia. It's one of my favourite places on earth. Uh, I'd live there in a heartbeat if it wasn't the arse and the, the South Pacific. <laughs> You know, um, and, and I, I, I had one of my ex-girlfriends was Australian. Um, she oh, actually yeah. lived here, and she was from Queensland, actually. Oh, you know all about it then. It's, it's interesting. I've, I've spoken to uh, a lot of British extreme metal musicians, such as now yourself and Bill Steer, who had Australian girlfriends. There's always been that connection between us. You know, we might hate each other on the sporting pitch, but outside of that, we're basically the same people. Absolutely. I mean, um, I've always said this, that I think... Um, Brits and Aussies can relate to each other more than we can do with Americans. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've got lots of American mates. They're all, like, top people. But Aussies and Brits, we've got we've got more of a cultural connection, I think. Yeah, and, oh, gosh, who was I speaking to? Um, you're going to have to forgive me here. The guitarist in My Dying Bride, whose name I'd be able to remember at any other point in time, but, of course, I can't right now. Andy? Might have been Andy, yeah, and, and I had Andy quite or a... Amy. Might have been Andy, actually. Yeah, definitely, I think it was yeah. Andy now, actually, from memory. Sorry, I've had well over 600 of these types of discussions, and you go off into all sorts of tangents, but it was, talking to him, the conversation was the same as the one I've just had with yourself now, and he talked about how, outside of London, as soon as you get into the provinces of Britain, and I had the same conversation, I think, with Stuart as well, Stuart Anstis, your old, your old bandmate. Yeah. It's virtually, the culture yeah. is virtually the same. In Australia, we're just... Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're both like, you know, culturally we're both heavy drinkers. You know, it's all about the cricket, the rugby. Absolutely. You know, and, um, yeah. you know, but um, you guys have got all the good weather and the, and the better looking <laughs> women. <laughs> hey, did you see the Rugby World Cup draw that just came out a couple of hours ago? No, I didn't know. I didn't see where England was, but I know that once again, Australia, the Wallabies, we're in with Wales and Fiji, as we've been yeah. in the last three or four World Cup. I don't know what the hell. I mean, there's only so many countries that play rugby, as you know, but uh, 
surely to goodness we could uh, mix it up just a little <laughs> so, so we uh, yeah. had some different pool outcomes. Yeah, sure. Mm. <laughs> How's your... Uh, I, I did notice on Instagram, kidney stones. Have you fully recovered from the uh, the ailment? Yeah, yes. Uh, I've I got to tell you, like I would not recommend kidney stones are my worst enemy um it's, it's even girlfriend said it's worse than childbirth mm. um i've never experienced pain like it um fortunately uh hopefully touch wood um i'm all done with them now they've dissolved and i passed them but uh yeah. it, it was hell i mean I, honestly you you're in so much pain that you look you, you're vomiting just in pain you know it's terrible. I wouldn't. If if you've had them, you'll you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I experienced a little bit of it uh, in in terms of similar pain uh, when I had appendicitis, but I also lived with something called ulcerative colitis, uh, which right. uh, yeah. you know, not to be too crude, but basically means on a bad day I'll just shit blood constantly. So it's it's similar yeah. in terms of the the pain. Like nothing seems to work except for you know some occasional illicit substances, if you know what I'm saying, that are still bloody illegal but shouldn't sure. be in Australia. But you got to do what you got yeah. to use, otherwise it doesn't. You, you Absolutely. Can't get I, oh, mate, it was horrible. I mean, um, you know, there, there was only so much like morphine and pain meds that they could give me, and it just it didn't do shit. It really didn't, you know. And um, I know um, Kevin Sharp, the, mm. the vocalist uh, the, from Brutal Truth and Lockup, uh, the very first day of the campaign for musical destruction tour with Napalm, it was. Napalm Death, Brujeria, Lock Up and Power Trip, all on one bus. Hmm. And the first gig was in Copenhagen in Denmark. And I was rooming with Kevin the day before and he had the kidney stone flare up and I'd never seen, I thought he was going to die. Yeah. I mean, he was in the fetal position on his bed, just going like, Barker, just kill me, do something, end it now. Hmm. And this was right before the start of a four week tour and, you know wow. how he sung. Uh, you know the lockup set, like with the kidney stones. I have no idea, but that guy is an absolute trooper. He is. Are you in touch with him these days? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there's no bad blood or anything um, between me and the lockup dudes. I mean, they're my brothers. You know, I just I wasn't feeling it anymore, and I wanted to do something different. You know, and um, mm. we're all good. I mean. I mean, me, Shane, and Anton, we, we play in Brujeria together. So, yeah, it's mm. all good. And I was literally, I spoke to Kevin probably like a couple of weeks ago. Your resume reads like something of Extreme Metal's greatest hits. <laughs> <laughs> and for fans like myself, I, I found out about you guys back in, I found out about yourself and, of course, Cradle of Filth, which is my entry uh, into your pantheon of work back in about 1995, I think it was. So, there's a whole cohort of people like myself in our early to mid forties or thereabouts that that revere the two albums that came out that had yeah. yourself and Stuart on it on the album. And I'll say just before I continue, my my discussion with Stuart for my podcast that was conducted about three and a half years ago, just to give you some idea about the legacy of Cradle of Filth and the your, your legacy effectively. That's my easily my most listened to podcast episode in that I get hundreds of listens to that a month. And I've, I've spoken to oh, people great. like Don Felder from the Eagles, you know, Peter Chris from Kiss. I mean, some some pretty serious people, all things wow. considered. And, and and it's Stuart, and that's and Stuart certainly. It's because of him, but that's because of the the wonderful work that you guys 
created together and, and your legacy. You know, so so you're part of you're one of the the three who I consider the three most integral members of Cradle of Filth. Yourself, Les, and Stuart. In fact, yeah, I, I feel as though that if you guys weren't part of the band for the couple of years that you were there, it was about five years for you, wasn't it? You were in there longer than anybody else of the th- the of the other three that I've just mentioned. But I don't believe for a moment that success would have followed for Danny in the way that it has, because the no, band's... not at all. Yeah, well, not yeah, you're clearly on the same page. Yeah, I mean, um, basically, um, for those who don't know, Filth, he has nothing, he, he, he's not a musician, he doesn't write any music, he's all about the image, the business, and the lyrics, you know, he's the businessman, hmm. um, as you can probably tell with the revolving door of uh, band members over the past 25 years or whatever. Um, yeah, basically, it was me, Stuart and Les that wrote uh, Cruelty, straight up. You know, um, Rob, Rob could barely tie shoelaces most of the time. And uh, Gian, he was just like there for the ride. You know, it was us three. We were there at every single rehearsal, you know, writing that shit, you know, you know, from like 12 to 5 p.m. Pretty much every day. It was a life. And, um, you know, the stuff that when when Stuart came into the fold, too, uh, during Vampire, I mean, you know, um, the, the, we, we had an immediate chemistry, you know, um, and it just made life so much easier that like you being on the same page with a guitarist and we kind of had this thing. He, he knew what, 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 what I was thinking. See, um, Stuart is, um, you know, he's had music lessons. He went to a, a music institute, music university. I'm totally self-taught. Um, I learned to play drums by playing along to ACDC. <laughs> Back in black, and it I just developed that. from there. Um, I um, Many people have said to me, you know, why don't you release like an instructional video? And the basic answer is two things. Um, what could I show the world that Derek Roddy, John Longstreth, George Colius, etc., 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 what could I show the world that those guys already haven't? Hmm. And number two, because I'm self-taught, I have no inkling whatsoever of any of the technical terminology you know a, a drum teacher could tell me oh you should play um 16 single notes in the syncopated polyrhythmic and i'd be like huh yeah but if he tapped it out oh that easy you know and that that's that that, that that's what works really well um stuart is very you know he, he knows music music theory everything and me i just if it sounds good, let's roll with it. And we had a great chemistry. And then when Les came into the fold, I mean, we were good friends and, hmm. you know, we were, we were drinking buddies. So it, it just, it was, it, it, it just felt really natural. And, you know, the music was just pouring out. It was, it was great, great times. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people contact me courtesy of the, con- no doubt it'll happen with this one too, by the way, when I hear it. But, the conversation with Stuart, who who have contacted me, and he talked a lot about or John as John is known, uh, and yeah. the, the or Blackie useless as we used to call him. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's a travesty that Danny doesn't recognise your contribution because you are, of course. I mean, you were there, so you're you're the you're the source material from the perspective that you know who wrote the albums, and of course you're part of the trio that did that. But for him to then go and release or re-release the album in 2019, I think it was remistressed, as he bizarrely called the album, and 
And I've got to say, one of the because I've spoken to Danny about this, one of the key reasons he's given for the remistressing is your drum sound. Now, I thought, okay, well, for fans like myself, I don't really care. That is the sound of the album, so please don't fucking touch it. I didn't like it when, when the guys in Led Zeppelin went and redid what they did back in the 90s. But yeah. you don't have to touch perfection because for fans like myself, and there's a, there's a lot of us out there, this isn't just like a, an opinion in a bubble or in a, my own little personal echo chamber here, we love the way the original album sounds, okay? But I think my overall point is that is an album that is, in my opinion, the greatest black metal album ever recorded, even more significant in its impact, and I'll go into a bit more detail about this in the moment, than Demisteri Don Satanus. But... And the reason for that, the reason I, po- I posit that is because of the introduction of Stuart's, the, the, Stuart's philosophy of new wave of British heavy metal, bringing that in to yeah. black metal. And what that did is it broke it open to a whole new audience. I got my hand up here because I was into Satyricon, Immortal, but I, I didn't listen to them a lot. I still preferred Morbid Angel and Cannibal Corpse and the like. But when you guys came along and did what you did on Cruelty and to a lesser extent Dusk, it just broke it open for a whole bunch of fans the T-shirts are on display all the way through the 90s. How many Cradle of Filth T-shirts were purchased in the 90s? It, they, you guys were oh. the metal band. You know, so, sorry, I'll, I'll, yeah, wrap, yeah. I'll wrap up my point here, which is that Danny could have at least acknowledged your contribution and asked you to contribute liner notes, maybe some in-studio photographs and the like for the remistress edition. And do you have an opinion, therefore, on the way that he conducted... The remistress version, i.e., would you have? Do you agree with his philosophy behind it that the drum sound was responsible for the way, uh, or, or was the catalyst, if you like, for the remistressing? And would you have done anything different? Well, when I when I heard the original mix, I actually burst into tears. I was on the phone to the record label saying, "You cannot release this. This has to be remixed." And back then, in the nineties, when you know people actually bought records. Um, record labels, you know, they'd throw stupid amounts of money at bands, you know, to record an album. And because uh, Just Gonna Embrace uh, was such a success, it meant that the follow-up album would be an even greater studio advance. So we were pretty much in the, we were pretty much living in the studio for like three months, renting a house in Birmingham. You know, the Napalm Death guys, Benediction guys. Everybody ran there every night, you know, till dawn, you know, just like, it was like the young one's house, you know, it was just a party. <laughs> and, um, you know, looking back now, how budgets and, the, the, you know, the whole industry's changed. I can't believe how much money bands, not, not just creative, but all bands back then, you know, how much money you used to waste in the studio, you know, like, because there was the money to do it, you know, like spending two days on a snare drum sound. You know, when your studio's like 800 pounds a day, hmm. you know what I mean? And then it just gets replaced with a trigger anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but the thing is, with the with the original version of Cruelty, is um, Stuart probably elaborated on it a little bit too. Um, we went with um, a guy, see, at the time, um, Ethereon had just released um, their album, Tomega Theory. Was it Tomega Theory? What was it called? Uh, uh, Philly. Philly was the album back then. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And um, we absolutely loved that. You know, we thought it was great. The operatics on it and everything. And um, it was Danny that wanted to use this guy. Um, I wanted to use Peter Tatgren or Andy Sneap. Perfect, and yeah. Filth, 
flat out refused to use Andy Sneap because he'd already worked with Icarti Enthroned, which was kind of like, I wouldn't say our rivals, but um, John, uh, the, lead, the lead vocalist of Icarti Enthroned, he was the bass player in Cradle of Filth for a while. Hmm. And um, when he quit Cradle, he went to form Icarti Enthroned. And because he, his vocal style was very reminiscent of Danny's, Danny kind of got a bee in his bonnet about it. And so he didn't want to use Andy Sneap. And management had a problem with Peter Tackburn, which I don't know why. I mean, you know, they work, they they, they take 20% and sit behind a desk, hmm. you know. And, um, yeah, so we went with the Theory on guy, uh, Jan Peter Genkel, I think his name was, and he just fucked it up royally. Excuse my French. Hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, it was it was an absolute disappointment. I couldn't believe the drum sound. I, I actually said to the guys, I'm going to run a fucking magnet across the master tapes. This cannot be released. And, uh, yeah, lo and behold, um, new Music for Nations released it, and it did really well, but I just remember all of the reviews saying how bad the sound was, and, you know, it really didn't do the songs justice because um, I still have the rehearsal tapes from the Dusk, from the Dusk and uh, Cruelty hmm. Sessions, yeah. And if you hit the the rehearsal jams, you'd be like, oh, my God. You know, e even like a boombox with a tape press record in the middle of the room, it sounded way much better and had way more atmosphere than how the album actually turned out. And I appreciate that fans, because that's the only way they know this album. Sure. So yeah. they look for what it is. But me, from a creative point, and knowing how the... the the rehearsal tapes sounded and the demos and everything we did. Um, it, it was a huge disappointment for me. And, um, yeah, things were already going kind of south with me and filth at the time. And, um, it was, yeah, the last, the last tour of the year in 1998 with Napalm Death and Bolton in Europe. Um, the first date of the tour, uh, me and Barney switched buses. I, I went to the Napalm Death bus and he went to the cradle bus because, it was the first bus in Europe to have a PS2 at the time, hmm. and he was all into gaming. So it was a it was a mutual trade off. And then after that tour, I decided to quit. Yeah, and and the band, frankly, has never recovered. In many people's well, opinion, mine, yeah, mine especially I know, I, mine. Yours, you and Stuart leaving I, was was a death knell for that band. Well, um, I, I left first, and it was um, Les and Stuart. Um, were the ones that left six months later. Hmm. Um, but I wish we would have all left together and then we could have audited, audited uh, the band because there was a lot of uh, discrepancies and everything. Hmm. Yes, yeah, I can imagine that'd be that'd be the case. And just just going back to the the remistress version of Cruelty and the Beast again. Um, yeah. You mentioned there, and this was something that Stuart had brought up, but there were demo recordings. There were also re rehearsal recordings. Man, as a fan of that, that album, a died-on-the-wall fan of that album, I would dearly love to hear some of that stuff. And that was the missed opportunity there with the, with the remixing and the remastering and the re-releasing, the remistressing. That's what Danny should have done. He should have reached out to you guys, let bygones be bygones, and said, listen, let's just do this for the fans. Absolutely. But, you know... It wasn't to be, and um, all, all all it would have took was a little bit of um, dialogue between us, you know. Um, what do you think to the mixes? I mean, 
you know, it's basically all vocals still. Yeah. And there's so many things wrong with it. And if you A-B it next to the original, the guitar tone is way thinner. The kick and snare are better, but the toms are buried. Um, the keyboards, the keyboards have lost all of their atmosphere. And it's just, yeah, it, it, it's just like vocals and backing, backing music to me. Mm. It, it could have been mixed a lot, a lot better. So when you, when you were recording the drums, yeah. what, was, what was tracked first? Were, were the drums tracked first with the demo guitars over the top? Yeah, um, usually how it happens is uh, drums always go first. Um, and you, you record to a click track mm. with a guide guitar. And then once the drums are done, um, you know, then you start building up everything else on top of it. So when, when were you first... When was it first apparent to you when the final, when you got the final mix before it sent away to mastering? Is that when you first heard it and went, oh shit? Or was it well before then? Uh, no, I, I heard what was to be the, the definitive mix. Um, because we were in the studio for, for like three months and it, mm. it's a really long time. You know, once, once you've done your parts, you don't really have to be there. But because I'm quite a hands on guy and you know, that, that music was mine. It was, the music was mine and Les's and Stuart's. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I had to be hands-on to make sure, you know, it, it, everything was how it was. And um, I, I, I left for some reason. I don't know what it was. And I think I just had enough of being in the studio. And when I got home and I got the, the, what was to be the final mix, I, I literally burst into tears. I couldn't believe it. As like all the money we've spent on this, and that's how it sounds. Wow. Are you fucking yeah. kidding me? We could have spent half the money and gone to Peter Tackgren in Sweden. You know, but um, you know, it's it banned politics. You know, bad management. You know, egos, etc. You know, for a brief period of time there, upon that album's release, because Metallica had shat themselves, Megadeth were about to shit themselves, Slayer were pretending yeah. to be punks. Cradle of Filth yeah. were the biggest heavy metal band and certainly the most important heavy metal band in the world. Was Did you get that feeling inside of the band yourselves that this is it, guys, we could potentially... Because you were the new wave of Iron Maiden, effectively. That's how I saw you as someone who's into yeah, Iron Maiden. Yeah. I, I just saw yeah, you guys I mean, as, as the natural successor. Steve had handed the torch to yourself and Stuart in a way you were supposed to go, but it just never quite happened. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's kind of... You know, we were really the, the the maiden thing is really ever. It's very, it's very evident on the cruelty album more mm. so than the previous releases. And um, I thought it was great. I loved that direction. And like you said, um, you know, maiden at the time, I think they had um, wasn't Blaze, Blaze in the Bailey. band. So and and I maiden shit themselves too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were playing bigger places than maiden in some some countries. Yes, at that time I remember that. Made it, yeah, and um, yeah, it was great. I mean, everything just happened so fast. It was looking back now, and you know, we were we were young. We were, we were only in our mid twenties, and we were living our childhood dream. And everything was happening so fast. You know, we were on, we were on. The BBC wanted to make a documentary about us. You know, we had to play live in the studio for MTV and. You know, overseas, like live on French TV, etc., etc. Mm. Uh, on the European tours, it was like absolute chaos because 
most of the like Amsterdam. Okay, you've got a signing session at Tower Records before sound check. You know, Paris, another signing session, photo shoot. You know, it was just bang, 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 bang. And I think because we were young and, you know, naive and, you know, we just, you know, we took it all in our strides, but we kind of, you know, we didn't really behave ourselves, if you like. I mean, we were the biggest black metal band and all the Norwegians, the Scandinavians hated us. Mm-hmm. They talked so much shit in the press about us. And we were like, well, you know, they're burning churches and killing people, but we're the bigger band. You know, we need to play up on this. And so we kind of adopted like this kind of black metal hooligan attitude, you know, mm-hmm. everything in excess. You know, it's, there was always somebody in hospital or getting arrested or some crazy shit. And we were just, you know, we were just playing on it because, yeah, we're the, we're the big boys and we can do what the fuck we want. You know, and at the same time, when when your career's just like climbing and climbing by month after month, you know, it's um it's very easy to get carried away, you know, and like being young and naive, you can kind of see looking back now, there's thing loads of things I'd do totally different, you know. But um hmm. yeah, I mean it, it, you know, I wouldn't change anything for the world. It is what it is. Yeah, the only thing myself and a lot of other fans would change is that you stayed in the band. And I mean, as I say, you, you've, you've practically recorded on Black uh, on Extreme Metal's greatest hits since. But I, I feel, and I'm writing a book about this, one of the key reasons that I reached out to you is because I am writing a book, and you're in it, because this, oh, album, is, this album is so important. What I hope to do long term with yourself, Les and Stuart is actually write a book about your experiences with Cradle. That's how important I think the album is and I, I, I will dedicate the time to that if you've, if that's something you're keen on doing because... Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. I, I think people need to understand in the fullness of time. I'm going to make a very broad statement or, or, or a big statement here and say that I think when it's all said and done in 50 and 60 years' time in the same way that we go back and revere some of the work of the Beatles and the like... Led Zeppelin's early material. We'll be doing that with Cradle of Filth's most important material. It's part of a pantheon of work that I think alongside of Nemesis Divina from Satyricon and the like. If these albums don't happen, black metal doesn't evolve in the way that it has. Yeah. It might have evolved, sure, but the key thing with, with yourself coming in and your drumming technique, that's been copied many times over. So, so surely to goodness you've heard your own drumming in your headphones when you've been listening to other bands because you've got your own inimitable techniques and people have copied them. So please tell me, because I, I can hear some bands that I think that that's happening. Well, so um, well you know, um, imitation is the ultimate flattery, isn't it? <laughs> so they say. Um, I think it's great. I mean, you know, um, I'm, I'm old school. You know, I learned to play drums listening to Phil Rudd. Phil Rudd to me is like one of the greatest drummers ever in the world. Um, you know, these you've got these young kids now that like half my age, they, you know, they can play like 320 beats BPM. Mm. You know, it's a liter- it's literally a blur, mm-hmm. but there's no there's no artistic merit to it. You know, Great. there's no soul. It's soulless. You know, play a four four rock beat like Phil Rudd. That's got soul. That's got feeling. You know, and um, just how drums, how, how the whole what I call the drum Olympics, how it's become nowadays. Um, like modern, like modern death metal and shit like that. It's it's not about the riffs anymore. It's just basically how fast your drummer can go, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like it, it, after 
30 seconds of hearing a typewriter is fucking boring. Absolutely. You I know? can't tell you how many albums I get through like that. Yeah. Oh, mate, it's, it's terrible. I mean, you know, I, I'm an old fart now. I'm, I'm almost 50 years old. You know, for me, death metal is pestilence, consuming impulse, morbid angel, altars of madness, you know, entombed left-hand path. Yes. You know, Tomb of the Mutilated. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Leveling Creation, the Ten Commandments. Yes, absolutely. You know, like Deicide. Deicide. I was going to say Deicide Legion. The first, yeah, yeah, I get you. You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And, you know, it's um, just how the whole extreme music's evolved. I, I, don't, I don't really, I'm really out of touch, you know. But um, I'm very flattered that, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that, you know, give me props and say, you know, they're, um, they're inspired by me. It's great. I mean, I'm pretty much. I, I stole everything pretty much from Gene Hogan and Neil Peart. Gene's <laughs> <laughs> a nice and guy. And just put actually, it into yeah. a black metal context, you know. Yeah. But really, I mean, um, if you listen to the drums, it really is just Gene Hogan and Neil Peart, but played in a black metal context. You know, and that's I think that's what gave. Yeah. That's. I think that's what gave the songs and my, my drums like a bit more, a bit more flavor, a bit more. Made it a, bit, a little bit more musical. Absolutely, yeah. And and I think for, for people like myself who revere Cruelty and the Beast as it was recorded, and to your earlier point, we of course we would never know what happened behind the scenes as the album was presented. I remember I had a, don't know whether they were in the UK, but a Suzuki Swift back in the day in the mid-90s. And, uh, you know, a little four-cylinder, you know, probably didn't even have, wasn't even a litre capacity engine, so it barely, it suffered through the Australian summers, let me assure you, but I remember putting in a, a, a I think about $1,500 stereo system into it, a pretty bloody good one, worth more than the car, practically. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember going into the city and buying Cruelty and the Beast and putting it into the, the car, and it, boom, it just hit me, and... One of the things that I think the album in its original format has got going for it, it is so unique and so standalone, as flawed as, as you as, as, as a creator of the album might have thought on, uh, prior to its release that it was, that it made it unique for those reasons. It was all part of the rich tapestry of what makes the album uh, a standalone. And, and I think that's one of the other reasons why we've never heard another album sound like it. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I'm glad there's no other <laughs> album that sounds like it because... I, I I appreciate you know you love this album, but for me it you know the sound it just that no that's not how it was supposed to be and hmm. you know when I when I heard the re the the reissued remixed thing it's like that's not how it's supposed to be either <laughs> you know but yeah. hey it is what it is. There's a bit of a thing there, isn't it, with Cradle of Filth on the two the the, the band, by far the band's two most important albums and you're you're a centerpiece on both. So Dusk and Her Embrace, of course, was re-released too. What was it called? It was called The Original Sin. But you recorded on both right, versions. Yeah. And and Danny told yeah. me that your drums are the same on both. So is that the case? Yes, yes. The drums are the only original... Um, the, that's the only original thing left. Um, because what happened was um, the, the, the re-release of Dusk, that was the original, the original master tape. That was yes. the original that tape. And um, that was supposed to be the second Cradle album. Um, but what happened was um, we were all broke. We were all, like, on welfare. You know, we didn't have a pot to piss in. You know, I remember I'd have to, like, pawn my TV and my games console just to pay my phone bill. Hmm. You know, and um, meanwhile, Cacophonous Records, 
they're signing up everybody Dimmerborgia everyone Gehenna and it's all from Cradle of Filth's money which mm-hmm. they haven't paid us they use basically they, they use the money we were owed to build yeah, the label a, Pont- a Ponzi scheme yeah yes yes so um, we were in the studio we recorded Dusk and um, I just turned around and said look if they're not going to pay us and fuck them you know we'll keep the masters because we, we we have them over a barrel then Pay, pay us what you owe us, and we'll, we'll gladly submit the master tapes. Of course, they didn't. They were stubborn, and you know a big lawsuit ensued. And then, Dusk uh, was the first release on Music for Nations, which was, you know, a big label. And um, you know, they we went in and re-recorded everything apart from the drums. You're meeting with Kit Wolven alongside of the introduction yeah. of. Of course, you were in the band already, but then Stuart and then eventually Les. I think Kit is the, the fourth member of, of, that, of that quartet, if you like, that is responsible for the success of the band overall because that album to this day sounds massive, especially on vinyl. Dusk and Her Embrace, of course, I'm talking about the version yeah. that has Stuart on it. Okay, so yeah, as you, I think, I mean, I, I, Danny's not a musician to your point, so he, he wouldn't know, but... As one of the musicians, did you feel as though the version with Stuart on it was vastly superior to the version with Paul on it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, it's just that there were—he just—there was a lot more clarity. You know, he tweaked some of the parts and just made it his own. And it just—it it, really—he's playing really shines. You know, and um, yeah, it was—it was yeah, good times. You know, I miss jamming with Stuart. I think he misses jamming with you too, man. I mean, that's well. I was going to save this question for one of my last ones, but I'll mention it now that you bring it up because we'd love to see the three of you together again. Yourself, Les. I well, know we, you're in Anathema we, with Les, so. Um, no, I wasn't in Anathema actually. Um, I played Bloodstock Festival for them, uh-huh. and it was yeah. totally on the fly. Um, they were rehe- they 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 were playing Bloodstock on the Sunday, and I was at Bloodstock on the Friday with Jeff Walker from Carcass, absolutely shit faced, <laughs> and the 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 Kavanaugh brothers kept blowing up my phone, and because you know Jeff is Liverpool, those guys are Liverpool, you know mm-hmm. they they've got history, and you know the, the UK scene everybody knows each other, it's very incestuous, mm-hmm. um so they're blowing up my phone and he says hey you better take it it might be important so. I take the phone and they say, look, you know, we need you to come up to Leeds now and rehearse for Sunday. It's like, well, I can't. I'm fucked. I can't drive like this. Mm. So I'll let, let me sober up. I'll come first thing in the morning. I drove up to Leeds on Saturday morning. Uh, I said to them, right, look, you know, you know, I'm a huge fan, but we're going to have to play the songs that I know the best because we're only going to get one jam and then it's straight, you know, the baptism of fire. And um, so we kind of, I said, look, let's make it like a bit of a best of set. And it was all the songs that, you know, I knew. And, you know, all the fans loved those songs because I'm a fan myself. Yeah. Yeah, And it went down, it went down. It was one of the best, um, best shows of the weekend, apparently. And (laughs) the funny thing is, was um, I'd made loads of cheat sheets prior to the gig. Mm. And I've got the cheat sheets on like a music stand next to the drum kit on the stage. 
they turned the fans on to blow the the the, the smoke. Oh no! All the fucking cheat sheets just oh. flew away like birds. I'm like, no. So yeah, I was. <laughs> Luckily, I pulled it off, but it just, you know, it, it, I wasn't in my comfort zone at all. <laughs> I reckon but Vincent. Yeah, yeah, I reckon Vincent's one of my favourite all-time musicians as well. I love the work that he's... He's great. Yeah, are you good mates with Vincent and, and Daniel? As oh, well? mate, I've known those guys, I've known those guys like 30 years, you know, since when they were a death metal band, you know, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. You know, the demo days, because um, I used to have a shitty generic death metal band before Cradle called Monolith, and, you know, we all used to... We, we You know, we all used to play on the same shows together. Um my band Monolith and Anathema, actually, we were the opening bands for Cannibal Corpse on their very first UK tour on Tomb of the Mutilated. That would have been a and this is when to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, and this is when days. Anathema, you know, this is when Anathema was still like kind of like a, a death metal doom band, you know. Mm. But it was, it was a great tour. Yeah, it was good fun. But I've known those guys, yeah, 30 years. So with, with yourself, Stuart and Les, is there is there any chance that the three of you could ever get together again musically? Well, we have we have actually talked about it. Um you know, because uh, Les and Stuart have got an entire cradle album ready to record. Yes. Um, can you talk about that, that for a bit? Because I didn't dive into that with Stuart yeah, sure. as much as I wanted to, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, they got this all this music together. Um because I when I left, I left when did I? I left in January '99, and they left uh, around in, after the summer. Hmm. Um, and they've been working on material for what would have been the Midian album. And um, uh, yeah, when they quit, they just took the music with them. They didn't give any of it to Filth. And this is the Clive um, Barker concept album, of course, isn't it? The mythical Clive yes. Barker concept album. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, funny story there, actually. Um, <laughs> I I used to uh, I used to bullshit chicks back in my late teens, early twenties. That oh yeah, Clive Barker's my uncle. Yeah, yeah. It's, oh really? And you know, I mean, hopefully that's not like some hashtag Me Too shit now. But uh, yeah, it, it, it worked a couple of times. You know, that's interesting, isn't it? But so yeah. you, you know, you you literally want to you you aren't the very sight of you. Like you see, there's only two of you really. There's yourself and, and Gene Hoglan and maybe Hellhammer, maybe Adrian Erlinson, of course, who was in Cradle of Filth a couple of. I think he, he was a couple of members after you there. But you're literally one of the most recognisable black metal drummers or heavy metal drummers of all time. Yet you got this other story. <laughs> but of course, that's all happened since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's well, you know, I think um, being a big dude as well, you know, covered in tattoos. Yeah. You know, I'm fairly outspoken. You know, I like to make people laugh. I'm a bit of a joker, so mm. people kind of remember you, you know. I can imagine. I can definitely imagine if just for the music alone. But um, let, let's just double back a bit again. Oh, actually, no, actually, I won't. I'll, I'll stay on track here because this, this Clive Barker concept album, Stuart, the first time I'd heard of it is when I spoke to Stuart. And I've had to listen yeah. back to that episode a couple of times, that, the conversation that we had a couple of times, and I realised that I didn't. it didn't twig how important it was for me to then ask more questions of him about that. So the album's actually done, is it? And it's ready to be, not so much ready to be released, but the, the basic building blocks of an album are there. Yeah, I mean, um, they're, they're not... 
they're, they're structures. I wouldn't say they're songs because obviously, you know, um, I'd need to listen to it and, you know, give my opinions on, well, maybe you should do this. And if I played this on the drums, that would fit mm. more with that. And maybe that would, you know, um, but, um, yeah, they're, 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 they're structures. I, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't say if they're like full, complete songs, but I know there is structures ready to go, you know, and all it, all it'll take is like, you know, for us to get into a jam studio for a couple of weeks to, you know, iron out any tweaks and then um, it would be good to go. And we have actually talked about it. In fact, um, almost every time I speak to Stuart or Les, you know, this always comes up, you know, oh, we should fucking get together and do this, you know, for the fans. And, you know, it's like, show the world, you know, what it, what it would have been. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it's just a question, like, obviously now, now we're all, we're all like 50 years old. You know, we've got kids, you know, that we, we don't live in the same area anymore. And, you know, it's, it's just a logistic thing, but, um, mm. I can pretty much say it'll happen when it happens. It, it, it will happen. Wonderful. But, you know, when, who knows, you know, it's, it's going to be one of those times when the stars are aligned, right, let's hammer this out now, you know. I think that's one of the things that pisses people like me off so much is that we missed out on so much great music with the three of you leaving Cradle because, look, Danny's voice is iconic. I've got to give him that. But he, he's not a musician, so he needs people like yourself around to write the music. And I just, the lineup since, and, and I've got to say... Paul isn't a patch on Stuart as a guitarist. He just doesn't have an no. identifiable tone, does he? Not at all, no. It's, you know, they're, they're, they're like night and day, you know. How, how was it for you being in the band with somebody like Stuart out the front? Did it, did it feel a bit like you had Adrian Smith out there? You know what I mean by that? You had somebody out there who had their yeah. own... Well, the thing is, is like me, Stuart and Les had this bond like on stage and off stage, you know, I mean, we, we always used to hang out together, you know, we'd smoke weed together, you know, we, we were friends as well as, you know, musicians, band members. So, um, you know, because they're so good at what they do, it, it, it was a breeze for me as a drummer to play with a guitarist that's solid and articulate. And, you know, he's, he's feeding off me, I'm feeding off him, you know, yeah, he reads what I play and vice versa. So yes, you know he knows he knows when I'm gonna go into a transition, and you know vice versa. It's you know when you when you get that chemistry with certain musicians, you know it, it it's a once in a lifetime thing. You know I can say I can say that I've got it with I've had it with a handful of musicians throughout my entire career. Yeah, you know, and some times it's not like that. You know, you, you, it can be not a personal struggle, but just like with, with some musicians, it just you don't seem to click. Mm -hmm. You know, you know what I mean. It's you're always like on edge. It. Like, what's he going to do next? You know, and you know what I mean. There's a certain there's a certain degree of unpredictability. But when you um, when the chemistry's there with other people and you just click immediately. You really don't have to worry. Everything's kind of on autopilot. It just happens, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm a musician too, and I've played in tons, not tons, but half a dozen serious cover bands and God knows how many others I've turned up for, just, you know, the fill-in work, you know, one night here, one night there, that sort of yeah. thing. And some musicians you work with, you've watched from 
the stage and you've you're on and you thought wow they're fantastic and then you get up on stage and perform with them and you're like this sucks and that's that's what you're alluding to yeah yeah so um you know to work with Les and Stuart you know it it was really truly a blessing Stuart told me this this incredibly funny story it was a meet and greet in Holland on the Dusk tour and it's about John and or Gian. We'll just call him John, I suppose. What do you prefer, John or Gian? Yeah, What's the... it's John. John is. John, yeah. So Stuart told me that you uh, you were at a meet and greet, and Stuart was backstage, and you went out to meet some of the fans, and you caught John mid brag talking about the solo on Beauty Slept and Sodom, which of course he didn't do, which was Stuart's, and then you went yeah. back and got Stuart. And you really gave him a ribbing in front of these fans, into which he said, "I thought that's what he wanted to hear." <laughs> and and I think if anything <laughs> summed up someone's contribution, that'd be it, that'd be it there. But do you remember that episode specifically? I don't remember that specifically, no, because that, to be honest, um, there were so many incidents, um, and you know, it, it was a long time ago. I mean, I mm. fried so many brain cells between then and now, so. <laughs> You know, as you get older, thing, your your memory starts to get a bit a bit hazy. But um, yeah, John, John was like that. You know, he'd um, he'd take credit for shit that he didn't even have anything to do with. You know, he was pretty much a freeloader, and um, you know that's that's where resentment and everything started to kick in because, you know, me, Les, and Stewart, you know, we're the sole contributors here, but you know, you're getting paid the same as us. Surely that's not right. You know, and so, you know, it's, there's a lot of politics and shit involved and, you know, resentment started kicking in. I mean, um, yeah, there's a lot of bad management, you know, um, and, you know, filth was all a part of it as well. I mean, we were selling out 1,500 to 2,000 capacity venues in Europe, which were probably on a back-end deal after break-even as well. And we rode in at the shittiest tour bus you can imagine, very basic crew and we were only coming home with um like merch profit so you know where's all the money going and of course when i um questioned management about this i was accused of rocking the boat and well nobody else wants to see the accounts nick so why do you why do you always have to make trouble and that pretty much that was the red flag that said you know what you're all fucked i'm out of here and then Two days later, I was in Dimmelborgia. I remember. Yeah, I remember. I don't remember. I certainly remember you appearing on the album because back then, of course, the internet wasn't the behemoth that it is these days. But yeah. There was a uh, was an interview. I can't remember who it was with. It might have been with Metal Hammer or Kerrang or Terrorizer. One of them, anyway. It was a British mag, anyway. I remember. And Les yeah. uttered the immortal line, what does Danny want? Danny and the filths? I remember it was Les who said Yeah, that. pretty much that was it. That was it. That's the way it was going. I mean, management, when management got involved, um, all they, basically, they saw, okay, we've got like an English Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson figure here that we can market and mould and, you know, and the band is expendable. You know, it was all, and that's when he, when he changed his name to Danny Filth, it was just like, oh, fuck, I know exactly where this is going and, you know, with all the mismanagement and, you know, there was no transparency with anything. You know, um, you know, well, I know where all the money was going, but, you know, I just couldn't prove it. 
Is that right? And, so um, you, if me and Les, yeah, if me and Les, me and Les still would have quit at the same time, we're all on the same page. I would have, I would have um, instigated um, auditing Cradle of Filth from the management, see where all the money's gone because there was thousands. I mean, we were the we were the biggest band, you know, and we're riding in a shitty tour bus that fucking breaks down every two hundred kilometers mm. with a minimum crew. And we're selling out 1,500 to 2,000 capacity venues. You know, why am I only coming home with merchandise profit? You know, alarm bells are ringing. Who owns the brand IP then back then? Okay, so obviously Danny owns it now. But back in those days, I imagine the three of you had a pretty bloody good case moving forward to take the name with you. Um, I wouldn't have wanted the name, you know, because, um, you know, I'm I'm not that type of person, you know, I'm just a straight up guy. All I want is what I'm owed and what's legally mine. Mm. And clearly the things aren't right. You know, there's no transparency, you know, like there, you know, there was a lot of lies and contradictions and, you know, and yeah. And, uh, you know, I just didn't want to be a part of that anymore, you know, and how management was, you know, manipulating Danny into this, UK Rob Zombie Marilyn Manson figure, you know, it, it just all went to his head. I mean, that's so know, true. It, yeah. It, yeah, on the Marilyn you know, Manson photos and shit. Yeah, yeah, he, he was getting the shit kicked out of him, like left, right, and centre by stage crews, security, because he'd be on stage and he'd, he'd kick a monitor at some like seven foot security dude in front of him, you know, and it's just like that kind of bullshit. It, it falls on me too. You know, not just him. It's like we all get tarred with that same brush. Mm. Now, you know, none of us were perfect, but we didn't go around acting like divas, you know, like I need this and the ice isn't cold enough and blah, blah, blah. You know, we would, as long as we got a bit of weed and there's some booze, we, we're good, mm. you know, and that, that was pretty much it. I'm sure Les or Stuart would tell you the same thing, but it was a very, very divided camp. You know, it was, it was him. And then there was me, Stuart, and Les, and you know. What about and the, the other two? What about yeah, since think. though? Yeah, the, the, I'm, I could read between the lines even back then that that Rob and and uh, John weren't they they weren't integral members if you if you like they just uh, sort, no, sort I mean, of just there. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, it was a very 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 split divided camp. I mean, like I said, the last European tour. I um, mean, November, December 98 was with Napalm Death and Bortnigar. And on the very first day, I went straight to the Napalm Death bus and said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not rolling on the cradle bus. I'd had enough by that time. Has, you know, Danny, was, yeah. has Danny reached out to you in the intervening years in at all? No, he, he wouldn't reach out to me. I mean, you know, our paths have crossed at festivals and stuff, you know, and, and he's overly nice to me. Um, but it's like, you know, I don't, I don't like the guy and I don't respect him because, you know, he fucked us all over mm. and, you know, there's thousands and thousands of pounds unaccountable for, you know, and I'm not a greedy person. I just want, I just want my, my slice of the pie, you know? And the thing is, if, if he'd have done the right thing, we'd have probably stayed with him, you know, but he didn't. So, you know, he broke up the band and. The band's never been the same since. 
I don't know how else I can frame this, but do you think Danny was jealous of the band's success? Does that make sense? Does he want? Did he want the success all for himself and not for the band? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, um, he wanted us to all... Well, after I left, um, uh, Les and Stuart told me that um, he wanted all the members to sign um, NDA clauses. Oh, shit. Yeah, wow. Um, you know, so nobody could talk shit about him. Mm. We couldn't discuss any Cradle of Filth business. Or anything, and like if I if I was in the band and he, you know that was submitted to me, I'd have told him to go and fuck himself. You know they're already there. You see, why do we need this? You know, it, it's it's you know red flags are popping up everywhere. You know, hmm. oh we've got to sign like contracts now that you know we 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 can't say this, we can't do that. Fuck that, you know. Yeah, that's that's and that, fucking that, odd, mate. I think yeah, that's. that's yeah, and I think um, I think that's why you know um, there's been an ever revolving door with band members because you know you just I mean you got to look at it like you know you got like these young musicians from like Eastern Europe that could only dream of being in a band like Cradle of Filth hmm. you know pay them a hundred euros a night they live like kings back home you know what I'm saying that that's pretty much the, the gist of things you know and yeah. I. I could go on even more because I I'm still really good friends with a lot of their crew from the past, mm. and some of the stories I mean are just absolutely you can't believe it, you know. I bet. And look, I've I've spoken to I know Lindsay's out of the band now, but I've had a conversation with her all for the podcast. By the way, I don't, I don't know anybody. It's only the the catalyst for my my introduction is because of an interview for the podcast, but. Lindsay and, and Richard, they seen Richard Shaw, that is the the guitarist who was Richard's replacement, uh, Stuart's replacement, about 17 times removed, of course, due to the volume of guitarists that the band has had. But they seem like pretty switched on people. So all I can think is is that particularly in Richard, because with in Richard's case, because he's still in the band, it's very much like the deal that Dave Mustaine even... You, you've seen... Have you heard about the deal that Dave Mustaine gave to David Ellison to come back into the band? I mean, I've only... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know what yeah. I'm talking about, and I better not air yeah, other yeah. people's laundry, but you know what I mean. Like, it seems like it's sign here, this is it. If you don't like it, don't do it. Don't, you well, know, it, fuck off. It's, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty much, you know, industry standard with a lot of people. I mean, um, the same thing with Michael Anthony, with Van Halen. Mm-hmm. You know, they they said, you know, if you want if you want in, then you have to give up your rights to the name and your share of the... You you know you're twenty five percent. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, it's it, it's it's happened everywhere, you know, and it's it's what I hate about the fucking music industry, you know. This it, it's almost like transparency and honesty is almost a taboo sometimes. You know, it's seen it's as like, a weakness is what I noticed. Yeah, and because I'm an outsp- I'm an outspoken guy, if I smell bullshit, I'll call bullshit. You know, and it's that's just how I am. I'm straight up. You know, what you see is what you get. I'm the, one of the most genuine, honest guys you could work with. And I get you know, that impression. Yeah, I don't understand why people have to be greedy and lie. You know. Well, I tell you what, mate. In my 42 years, it's one of the reasons that uh, you know I was born a Catholic, raised a Catholic. You know, <laughs> there's got to be a reason that there are so many fucking assholes are out there and it's one of the reasons I, I ended up at Krishna Consciousness as an aspiring 
aspiring devotee. So there's nobody who's a Krishna devotee would call themselves that. They call themselves aspiring devotees. But I see I still eat meat and do a lot of the things that aren't quite uh, integral to being uh, an aspiring devotee. But um, one of the key things that, that drew me into the faith was we talk. they talk about living in this uh, age of iron and fire, Kali Yuga. We're, we're basically in between heaven and hell, which is why you get people yeah. like yourself who have stand-up characters who just want to do the right thing and then you get other people who want to take advantage of the people doing the right thing because it's really the story of humanity not just now but right back to antiquity and, and even further back because of course we can't possibly know all history is an obfuscation all textbooks are bullshit like uh, graham hancock talks about you know the pyramids and the, the sphinxes being tens of thousands of years older than what the textbooks say they are. And my point there is that we've been fucking rotten for a lot longer than what we actually give ourselves credit or maybe not so much credit for, if you know what I'm saying. And, and we, you know, our evolution seems to rely on people fucking other people over. And it's just ridiculous because just in, in our little, you know, corner of the world here, extreme metal, cradle of filth, my, my ultimate view is that we were denied one of the greatest bands in history because of Danny's attitude and now, as I understand it, management with you guys, the three of you being forced out of the band for the reasons that you were. And and I'll go even further and say that, you know, life's tough. Life's long. You know, people suffer anxiety, depression, family breakdowns, relationship breakdowns, breakdowns for no reason whatsoever. Some people can just be driving along in their car and holy shit, they just feel like the whole world's coming in at them. Music is one of the cornerstones of people's existences because it feeds our, it nourishes our spirit and our emotional well-being. Do you understand? Absolutely. I know it's a broad, broad point to make, man, but, I mean, it's so important no, no, to make I, that. I, I agree 100%. You know, and, and I think that, you know, with people like yourself, it's so important, Nick, that you keep on doing what you're doing um, and, and that you've... And one of the key reasons I like... I wanted to reach out to you, and as I did with Stuart, was just to... And I'm sure you know, I'm sure you speak to people like myself where the music that you've been a part of has had such an integral impact on our lives. It's, it's as important as a human relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I feel the same way about, you know, the, the music I love, you know, and what it means to me. Um, and it, it's really flattering and it really, it really gives me a sense of pride that, you know, people like yourself, um, talk about music that i've made in such high regard mm. you know it's um i'm a manic depressive so um it, it's hard for me sometimes to accept the compliments and hard for me mm. to understand that people feel this way about something that i did you know um and um yeah depending on where my mood is you know determines how i how I accept it and how I deal with it, but you know, it's I, I'm kind of embarrassed, you know. Uh, no, so I think you know, it's I a, kind of get shy and like, oh, thanks, you know, when people <laughs> give me compliments. Well, it's important you know. that I think you hear that because in, in your lesser moments, mate, please, you know, remember those words because they're, they're not just mine, by the way. I've got I've got people all over the world reaching out to me, as I mentioned, and, and it'll have as I say it will happen because of this episode too. Once I release it, but yeah, the Stuart episode, and and it's easily. I get more communication, not just listens, but more com to that podcast episode, but more communication about that episode. Okay, so yeah. it's, it's had a tremendous... Mate, people from Latin America, 
I mean, these are pe- a lot of wow. these people, mate, don't have much of their lives, if you know what I'm saying, in terms of material oh, access mate, to material I, I, goods. I've taught, I've taught Latin America several times uh, because of my involvement with Brujeria. Mm. And, um, you know, I've been, we've we played everywhere, everywhere in Central America, South America, Mexico, um, Dominican Republic, we played um, Puerto Rico. Um, and when you see how, how meaning, how worthless life is there, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, you know, for instance, in, in Colombia, um, cocaine's cheaper than a McDonald's Happy Meal. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how can that be? You know, and there's, there's kids living on the streets, like passed out and that you can see like drug paraphernalia next to them. And mm-hmm. it's horrible. It's, you know, when it makes you realize just how lucky we are and how fortunate we are and despite you know how much we bitch and moan about how our lives are mm-hmm. you know it's been horrible down there so you know when when people down there you know um you know um, compliment you and um you get adulation from fans down there they're very passionate mm. it's it's a totally different world i mean um i had one fan uh, I can't remember where it was. I think it was somewhere in Brazil. He pulled, he pulled a three fifty seven out and said he'd kill someone for me. Jesus, you know man. that's how fucking crazy it is down there. And I shot myself. I thought he was going to shoot me. Yeah, you know. But he's, you know, you are God. You know, you are my God. Uh, you know, I will fucking kill someone for you. It's like, nah, nah, nah. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I devotion. Do, I don't. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's scary too, you know. Um, it's crazy, you know. And um, yeah, we, we, I got robbed at gunpoint in Sao Paulo as well, which Jesus, wasn't very yeah. good. Uh, yeah, two two dudes on a motorcycle. Uh, we're in the shittiest part of town because obviously that's where the cheapest hotels are. Mm. And um, I've gone out to get some food, and um, yeah, this mo this motorbike mounted the sidewalk dude on the back had a gun in my face and he just said money I gave him my wallet and they fucked off in the night I've never been so scared in my life <laughs> it's very confronting for us coming from countries like the UK and Australia when that is the daily yeah, reality yeah. of many people isn't it and we don't know which areas yeah. are more dangerous than others absolutely I mean you know life life is meaningless though it's, it's worthless you know and when I look back on the situation I gave him my wallet but all, the only thing I was bothered about, I didn't give a fuck about the money. It just had um, photos of my kids when they were little and post-it notes that they'd written to me like, you know, have a good time on tour, daddy. Come home soon. Kiss, yeah. kiss, kiss. Shit like that, I'll never get back again. You know, I mean, hopefully with the money, they bought the biggest bag of heroin they could find and they fucking OD'd. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, they could have shot me. They could have took the wallet and then shot me. Or what if I didn't have any money on me and they shot me? You know, and, you know, the next day when it's lobby call, we got to fly to the next city. You know, my band are right in the lobby. Where's Barker? Where the fuck's Barker? He's not in his room. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in a morgue somewhere. It's yeah. crazy shit, man. It's right. It, it the, the whole gunpoint thing. It really scarred me for a long time, you know. 
Yeah, I can I can tell. Uh, you know, for people listening, of course, you know, you and I can see each other because we're on Skype. But yeah, I mean, I've never had that happen. But I think you only have to have that happen to you once before it's uh, it's it's easily. Uh, did you have that? I hope you don't mind me asking questions about this, by the way, before before I do. So it's not at all. But did you have that? Fire away, did you have that moment where your life sort of flashed before your eyes and the, as the people talk about the cliche, I, I, again, I hope you don't mind me calling it the cliche. It wasn't, thing. you know what, mate, it happened so fast. You know, when I, when I look back at it now and remember it, it's kind of in slow motion when I remember it now. But at the time it was so fucking fast and I was like, it was almost like it, it wasn't real, like it wasn't happening. Like the, the the motorcycle mounted the sidewalk, he pulled the gun on me, the the passenger on the back. He said money, and I was kind of like, I was almost in shock. Like I just, you know, like you, you're hypnotized or something. I just gave him the wallet, and then they fucking sped off. And like for a few seconds, I was like, did that really happen? And then the shock hit me, mm. and I remember just running for my life back to the hotel. And I was like shaking like a leaf, and um, the adrenaline you know, kicked in. Guys, yeah. yeah, I was like, I was fucking trembling. I was like, I've just been fucking robbed at gunpoint. They pulled a fucking gun on me. He stuck it in my fucking face, you know. And I was, I was almost in tears. And um, you know, they were, they calmed me down. And said, right, first things first. You know, you've got to contact your bank, cancel all your cards, blah 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 blah. You know, at the end of the day, it's only money. You know, you're still here. That's what you got to remember. They could have fucking shot you just for the fun of it, you know. And it's yeah. So after I calmed down and that, you know, it's like okay, yeah, you're right. It's only money, but it's money that I need to pay my bills when I get home. And you know, blah blah blah. Yes, but yeah. you know, yeah. out of a out of a gesture of good faith, um, the guys had a bit of a whip round for me. So you know, I went home with something. Was that Dima? Which was, you know, Dima no, or that, that was, No, Bruharia. Yeah. You know, so it's like really stand-up guys, you know, they had a bit of a whip round for me and said, look, we can't see you go home broke. Here's a little something that we've all chipped in. That's you know, and that, that was yeah. cool. Of them. You've got a, a Bruharia T-shirt on right now. So that that's a band that you yes, consider, mate. Yeah, that's like a band of brothers and a sister too, I take it. Yes, yes, Jess. Hmm. She's my little sis. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I've, um, I just heard actually, because um, they're just finishing up the vocals on the new album now, mm-hmm. and I've just heard Jessica's uh, song, and she fucking destroys on it. It's like whoa. I mean, sh- she's up there with, she's up there with Max Cavalera and Salmo. You know, she's got the pipes. Absolutely. There's a YouTube clip of her out there, and her her, her band. I can't remember what the name of the band was from about five years ago. Or so. And uh, holy yeah. shit, yeah, you're right. I mean, she's she's right up there with um, um, what's uh, White Gloves. What's her first name? Sorry, from Arch Enemy. Sorry, I can't remember now. I've spoken oh, to her. Um, you know, is it Alyssa? Alyssa. Alyssa I was going to say Angela. Angela Gossow is the original singer, and the, well, not the original, yeah. but you know, yeah. was before her. Yeah, she's right up there in terms of that, in terms of stage presence as well. Absolutely, she's great. Uh, it's such such a such a great thing to have her on board, you know. And she she loves Brujeria. And, you know, so it's great. And um, she's just one of the lads, you know, like on tour, <laughs> you know, there's no bullshit, you know, because sometimes, you know, with women on tour, you know, understandably, you know, you have to make, 
you know, you have to compromise and things, you know, because there's a female. But with Jess, I mean, she's like, no, nah, just treat me like one of the guys. I'm cool. And she's you know, married so, to married to somebody in Meshuggah, isn't she? Uh, I don't know if she's married. I, I think they're engaged. Uh, Thomas, mm. the drummer. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so um, she lives in Sweden now. Um, she's just got a Swedish residency. Uh, so she's all happy about that. Um, and she's she's just itching to get back on back out on the road with us. She's great. I mean, she's a great girl. I mean, you know, she puts up with all our farts and everything <laughs> on the bus. You know, and she's just cool. She's one of the boys. You know. Yeah, I, I can only imagine what it'd be like touring in a band like Brodia and uh, the shenanigans that the band collectively oh, would God, get yeah. up to. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah, we have a good time. Let me ask you this then: as a sixteen-year-old, way back in the day, uh, early nineties, late eighties, did you ever think it was possible? I mean, you're almost fifty to your point earlier in the conversation. You you have led an extraordinary life, and your career. Uh, I mean, it's just in, it's just astonishing, really. Your career credits. Did you think it was even remotely possible? No, it, it, this is, um, I've said this to some of my local friends here, um, you know, like if someone would have told me back when I was 13 or 14 and I've got posters of Exodus, Nuclear Assault, Slayer, you know, uh, Possessed, Dark Angel, you know, all, all the shit, you know, the usual teen stuff. If mm. somebody would have told me back then that one day, you're going to play in Exodus. You're going to play in Testament. You're going to play in Nuclear Assault. You're going to play in Possessed. I'd be like, get the fuck out of here. What the fuck? You know, I'm just some, some like dropout, some high school dropout kid, mate, from a working class bullshit town in the middle of England. You know, it's a million miles from the Bay Area, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a trip. But sometimes I, I do like have to take a breath and think, wow. Yeah, it's what a journey, you know. For 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 I feel, a, I feel right, sorry, you go, you go. Sorry, go on. Oh well, just, I feel I feel truly honoured and blessed that you know I got to live my childhood dream. For a self-described, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, unschooled drummer, you've you've done extraordinary things, and I think it's it's people like yourself that prove to people that you don't need to spend four years at a conservatorium. In order to to, no. to carve out a career as a musician, you've just got to have passion. The the chop you've got the chops. God no, Jesus Christ, you've got the chops. There's no doubt about that. But you're you're a born drummer. I think you're a born musician. You're someone who was put here to do that. So eventually, you would have found a way to to success. Um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, um, I had a really shitty childhood, and my stepfather, um, he he was a guitarist. And he, he listened, he, he had great, great taste in music, but he was an absolute arsehole. And he kind of forced the guitar on me um, from, I think I was like about eight years old. Despite me, you know, I want a drum kit, I want a drum kit, please get me a drum kit. I'll wash the car for the next thousand years. I'll, I'll cut the, I'll mow the lawn, I'll do the yard. Just mm. get me a drum kit, please. Um, you know, and he forced the guitar on me. I just, I didn't take to it. It's not me, you know, and... In between the guitar shit, I remember playing on the pots and pans and always tapping, you know, and um, I could air drum. That's another thing that um, Gene Holtman said the same thing. Like, 
you know, he was the best air drummer there was. And yeah, I could air drum. So when I got a drum kit, it, 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 it really didn't take me long. I mean, I got the drum kit. It was a piece of shit, but I loved it. It was mine. And um, I just put the headphones on. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the old 70s style Mickey Mouse style with the curly phone cord. Yeah, the, the those kind of things. Pigtail, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, I remember the first, I, I played Highway to Hell. And after about 30 seconds, I got the the gist of the 4-4, basic 4-4 rock beat. And then I carried on playing along to ACDC for a couple of months. And within six months, I was playing along to Metallica. Lars you Ulrich. Know, bloody good old Not the Lars double bass shit. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'd, you know I'd, I'd learned, I'd mastered how to play um, uh, off beats uh, with my kick drum, which was a big, that, that was a really big achievement when you got to, when I learned to play an off beat, you know, the dun-dun-dun. The extra kick, sure. Um, yeah. So that that made the Metallica stuff even easier to play, and um, then I got my first double bass kit when I was seventeen. I started playing when I was thirteen. But, um, I got my first double bass kit that my foster parents bought me. Um, by this time, I was in foster care, and they bought me the double bass kit, and it just went on from there. Things obviously at home were very difficult for you then. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, you know, it's the typical thing. The stepdad was a wanker, you know, resented the fact that he had to raise a kid that wasn't his. And, yeah. you know, my old man wasn't sending any child support, so that made it hard. And, you know, it basically, it, it you know, it was taken out on me. Jesus. But, uh, yeah. you know, it is what it is. I mean, everything happens for a reason. And, you know, if the circumstances in my childhood didn't happen, I might not be here today. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's you that's know. the only way. I know what you're saying. Yeah, my 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 upbringing too was I was shipped off to a boarding school very young too. So, in a lot of ways, you know, when I often say to people, when you move out of home at 25, I did it when I was 12. And uh, yeah, mate, I, I did it at 14, mate. Yeah, I know exactly yeah. where you're coming from. Yeah, and it's it's just you know. it forces you to either put up or shut up. And I've got to say, I was a pretty timid kid. I shut up a lot of the time because I'd I mean, I'd I'd seen. I mean, I went. God, I can talk about this a little bit. Um, the boarding school I went to was one of those ones where there's a recommendation into a commission for sexual assault. And this was boys on right. boys, by the way. It wasn't teachers wow. on boys. This is shit that was going on. You know, all these, yeah. these these big, tough, burly fuckheads from the Australian bush, mate, as soon as they saw some timid kid from the city or from an urban area, oh. mate, mate, some of the things that would go on there. that And, and I've got to say, it didn't happen to me, but it was going on around me. And it does scar you, yeah. I've got to say. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know... I, I had nothing like that happen to me. All, all my abuse was physical and mental. Uh, my mother's abuse was mental. Mm. Um, she was probably un, undiagnosed, like fucking whatever. But back then, you know, those medical conditions didn't didn't um, exist. I was basically um, born to a 16-year-old single mother out of wedlock in 1973. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, that was very much frowned upon back then. <laughs> You know, um, but like I say, you know, fuck it. It's like everything happens for a reason. If if things in my childhood, um, in my young years, didn't happen, I probably wouldn't be here today. You just don't know. Mm. You know, so yeah, yeah. It was was there any sliding doors moment then for you within your career 
because uh, of course Cradles is the big one, but you've mentioned Testament, Exodus. Was there a seriously well-known band that said, look, Nick, we need you to come on board. You're the guy for us. And he went, no, I don't think so. Um, I, no, not, no. It, it's more been more the other way around where um, we'd really like you on board, but we've heard all the horror stories. You know, we've heard you can be unpredictable, um, you know, impulsive, you know, and, uh, you know, you're a bit of a party animal. I mean, but it's like, you know, you know yourself, like, you know, we've all heard anecdotes and stories about different musicians and they did that. By the time it's done the fucking rounds and come back to you, you know, it's, there's no truth in it whatsoever because it, mm-hmm. it's it been so exaggerated. And, um, but yeah, because we're, you know, we were kind of hooligans in Cradle, it, it's kind of, it did kind of tarnish you know, um, my name, and it has, you know, I'd say it has cost me um, a few choice gigs in the past. Mm. You know, um, I was in line to do the Carcass reunion. Uh, oh, wow, yeah. Jeff Walker, Jeff Walker approached me at, at Download Festival in 2005, and he, and he, his exact words were, quote, unquote, would you be up for uh, doing the Carcass reunion? Yeah, yeah, of course I fucking would but you've got to behave yourself. And it's like, where's that come from? You've heard some bullshit rumours about me. and All right, so, yeah, there was the one time I hung Danny Filth out of a hotel window in the States. That story has kind of been an albatross around my neck. You know, but if he wasn't such a cunt, I wouldn't have hung him out the window. It's pretty straightforward. You know, there was a reason for it. Mm. You know, but no one tends to ask, well, why did you do that? Mm. You know, well, here's why. You know, and um, yeah, it's. It, I'd say it, some of the excessive behaviour and everything in the past, it's had a bit of a negative impact on. You know, it, I've lost out on a lot of good gigs, basically, like life changing gigs. But you know, I'm not. It is what it is, mate. You know, it's like. You know, would I have been happy in that band? Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. You know, but um, yeah, it's, I've got no regrets really. You know, I think to your think... point, though, it's it's all just a matter of. Uh, I do think uh, maybe maybe because I'm a musician too. Maybe I think I understand this better than most people. But in the music industry, I do think you've got to be a fatalist because there are so many sliding doors moments to that point where where yeah. you want you really want something to happen, and you've probably had this happen where you've really wanted something to happen, then it happens, and it fucking sucks. And you're like, man, this should be so much better than what it is. And some after a few of those episodes, and God knows in my tiny little, you know, thing here in Queensland and the cover scene that I'm a part of, I've had a few of those things happen. Like, I really want to play with this guy. And then you get up on stage with them and they're total cunts. You know, you can't you want yeah, to talk well, about the football scores between between sets and they're complaining that your bass is too loud or something, and you're like, just chill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um funny you should mention the covers thing. Um so I I'm I'm a huge ACDC fan. That they're my first love. You know, Bon Scott is a fucking he's he's god to me. Hmm. And um, I did have a uh, ACDC tribute band here called Sin City, and um, we we actually we, we got the tribute scene in the UK is very bitchy. There's there's a few DC covers bands, and you know that the, the members tend to flip flop between each one, but there's a lot mm-hmm. of cattiness and bit bitchiness you know same here mate don't worry um, <laughs> exactly yeah. the same here and anyway 
just bear with me. I'll just get a glass of water. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, we um, we we were built up a really good reputation, you know, on the tribute scene. I mean, you know, my Angus, geez, he, he he sound. If you close your eyes, it was like listening to Angus. And because he's so, so, so small, with the uniform on and the hair, it's like oh my god! And you know, the dude we had as Bond, he, he nailed it. He, he even used to speak in an Aussie accent in between the songs. Wow. Yeah. You know, like Bond, and it was fucking mm. great. You know, and um, yeah, so. We had a showcase gig in Manchester, this um, big, like, live venue that they only do tribute bands, you know. Um, I think the Australian Pink Floyd played there, you know, fucking 20, 30 years ago or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's a showcase gig. And the manager of um, the UK's biggest Led Zeppelin tribute, Let's Zepp, um, they had a O2, um, they had a UK tour booked. All O2 venues, so it's all legit, proper mm-hmm. stuff. And they needed um, a, tri- a good tribute band to open. He'd heard that we were one of the best ACDC bands. Anyway, fast forward. My singer decides to get fucking shit-faced, right? During the first set, he's pissed and he's necking the fucking booze. Wow. So by the end of the first set, he's fucking lit. The second set was an absolute disaster. The guy left. You know, and it's like, do you realize what you've just cost us? You know, even if we wouldn't have got the Led Zeppelin tour, we're on this guy's radar now. Yep. And, you know, he's going to be looking out for us. You know, he might even want to take us on. And, yeah, he totally fucked it up. And I ended up ripping a door off the hinges and trying to beat him with it. <laughs> Don't blame me yeah, for, for an opportunity like that. But that's what that's what happens, yeah. though. You know? Yeah, I, mate. It's. Oh, we, we put so much effort and time into it, you know, like we rehearsed three times a week, you know, the attention, the details, everything. I mean, you know, they even joked, they even used to call me Phil Pud, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but I said, well, you call me Phil Pud, but don't call me Simon Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, actually, yeah. What, do you, what do you think of the uh, of power up? I actually quite enjoyed it. Mate, I love it. It's the fucking best thing they've done in like since Razor's Edge. Thank you. I said exactly the same thing in a review. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 everything I love about ACDC, except Malcolm's not there and Bond. Mm-hmm. Um the riffs, it it took me back. It it made me feel like I was a kid again. You know, everything I love about ACDC is on this record. You know, except for Malcolm and Bond, obviously. But the riffs mm. it's just got such a great early eighties vibe, you know. Like Witcher's Spell, that could easily be off for those about to rock. Mm. You know, it's fucking great album. I mean, the moment I got it on my iTunes, I was like, wow, this is... I felt like a kid again, mm-hmm. you know. And to be honest, mate, with how shit this year's been, the new ACDC album is the best thing to happen in 2020 for me. I've heard that a lot, man, yeah. I See, I, I uh, Razor's Edge was the first album that I bought. So for me, yeah. that's the template. If you like, and I, yeah. I've played, God, I've played a ton of ACDC stuff over the years because playing covers in Australia, as you can probably imagine, you've got to have five or six in the set list anywhere you play, especially in r- yeah. rural and regional areas. Sometimes a whole set can just be ACDC songs. No shit. Just... Oh, mate, I'd fucking that. that that's, <laughs> to me, that's the best night out ever. It's, it's incredible. Actually, there are, I reckon, I think just in my little covers scene here in brisbane 
there's three or four ACDC cover bands just in, in that I know personally. God knows how many there are across Australia. And I'm sure in the UK and the US as well, but there's something about that band that just seems to... In, it's universally endearing. And and I think it just sort of drills back to these these young fellas. I know they were born in Glasgow, but they were, they were born and raised... They were, they were raised in uh, Ashfield and Sydney. Just that street yeah. attitude that they've got and how Absolutely. real and raw and how direct it, the directness of the music, it speaks to just about everybody. Yeah, you know, and the fact that they're expats as well, you know, it's because Scotland, I mean, you know, it's a pretty fucking rough place. You know, Glasgow, I mean, you know, yeah, it is, you know, it's, there's no, there's no messing about with people from Glasgow. They've got a reputation, you know, and, uh, yeah, just, yeah, they're amazing. I, I can't, you know, I, I tell everyone here, it's like, if you want, you want to get the shit kicked out of you in Australia, just walk into any pub and say ACDC are shit. You won't fucking leave. I'm telling you, no. <laughs> it actually, it actually gets to a point. And I made this point of all people to Doug Wimbish from Living Colour because being a bassist, Doug's one of my my main men. And um, yeah, it got to a point where I was trying to avoid people who had an ACDC fascination because playing in a band with them was so annoying. Because all they wanted me to do was pump out quarter notes. And and turn right, yeah. turn the volume right down exactly like um, Dave, who's the? Oh no, Dave Evans is the Australian bass player. Who's the Cliff? Cliff, Cliff, Cliff Williams. Yeah, uh, like what he does, and and it just got so annoying because doing that for collectively speaking four and a half hours because if you're playing four one hour sets plus an encore or what have you, God, you get bored. Yeah. <laughs> you get so bored and you forget where because they want to do simple versions of simple versions of songs, even if they've got a, a, a risque baseline or what have you. So, yeah, it, it definitely, it's so ubiquitous here, man, that, the, as I say, as a muso, I just got to a point where I didn't want to play in a band with any of these guys who had a fascination, not because I don't love the band myself, but because being around people who did meant that I knew what my role was going to be forced, what the role I was going to force to play as a bass player. So it's uh, <laughs> it's got its good and its bad sides, I suppose, in Australia, but... Uh, can't complain about the music, you know, and and, and just no. just just for you and the stuff that you've played on. Gosh, I mean, Lock Up, um, Bruheria, of course, Cradle of Filth, the big one for me. Uh, Demu, um, God knows how many other bands that you've just done sessions with, like we talked about Anathema. But do you have an album or even a moment, a live performance? So your choice that you think stands head and shoulders above all others. Um, I'm I'm very I'm I'm re- very proud of the um, the Dimmu records I played on and the Old Man's Child album. You know, because um, they you know the, when I left Cradle, my number one, my mindset was like I've got to make the drums fucking absolutely destroy anything I did with Cradle. Hmm. You know, okay. really step up. And you know, up my fucking A game on this. And with Dimu, they had a lot more um, fast double kick parts in their songs. So when we was writing, they were like, "No, we need doubles on that part. Dub- doubles there." I'm like, well, okay. And they really, you know, they really worked me in that sense. And uh, they, you know, they helped build up my chops. And um, yeah, my I say my feet were probably the fastest. Around that time, 
Oh yeah, yeah. I, mean, you know, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, you, you and Silent Oz man were a great team. Yeah, yeah, and um, I'm still good friends with him even today. You know, um, you know, I, I speak to him pretty much every day online, and uh, you know, um, yeah, they're, they're, my time in Norway was very special. You know, I really cherish that time and uh, look back at it with fond memories. So, so there's people oh. like myself whose most prominent memories of yourself are Cradle of Filth, but that was 25 years ago or thereabouts, 20 years ago at least, longer, uh, 22 years ago thereabouts. 20, so, oh, yeah. Yeah, so do you have fans that aren't even aware of your work in Cradle that are more familiar with some of your more recent work? Um. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Some people, oh, oh, you were in Cradle of Filth? Oh, okay. Yeah, but the, to be honest, there's been so many, like, Band members come and go from that band. I mean, you know, <laughs> any you can't blame anyone for being hard pushed to remember everyone. You know, indeed, yeah, indeed. Yeah. But um, no, um, it's it's mainly Cradle and Dimmu that I get that um, you know, recognition for. Hmm. You know, no child. You know, lock, lock up. The music's very brutal and everything, but it's very much an underground band. You know, those who know, know, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. I remember the first album. I can't remember. You were on the, please tell me you're on the first album because I've always thought that you were. I can't remember the name. Yeah, of it now. It's good. All, all yeah, of the, the orange and yellow cover. Yeah, the orange and yellow cover. Sorry, I tend to. Play, play, play too. Yeah, that was when Pete was in the band then, wasn't he? Yeah, yes, that's right. Um, and uh, the, the thing, the, the reason why um, we got. Uh, Tompering on the second album is because um, we on the first album we got so many offers to tour hmm. and play live and um, you know um, and this is no disrespect to Pete I love him he, he's he's one of our best friends I've known him for years um, you know we we like for instance we got offered the tour with Immortal and Satyricon in the US gosh yeah. and Pete was like yeah 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 I'm up for it but then of course when it come to Okay, right. We've got to submit the paperwork for the visas. Oh, I can't do it, man. I, I'm doing the new Dark Funeral record, you know. And so, it kind of held us back a little bit. But um, you know, it's just one of them things. You know, he, at the time, you know, he had hypocrisy. Um, mm. He was doing pain, and he, he had a full time studio. So, you know, you can only stretch yourself so so far. Were you ever in the mix for the Celtic Frost gig? Because I imagine you would have been—you would have been one of the drummers out there that could have done it. Um, Tom, Tom Fisher, um, said to me again. He said um, uh, for the Trypticon thing. He said that you, you 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 were one of the drummers that I was considering, hmm. but I've heard a lot of crazy stories about you. Oh Jesus! You yeah. know, again, that old chestnut. You know, it's like fucking hell. You know, what is it? You know, these people wait. Way more out of control than me, but it is what it is, you know. It's, you know, I probably, you know, I, it probably wouldn't have been for me anyway, even though that I love the music, you know, because I have to, I have to gel with the people on a personal level too. And I know Tom is a great musician and a, 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 a beautiful human being, but, you know, he's very straight and, you know, direct and, you know, um, I'm a bit of a clown, you know, <laughs> like, you know, that, I don't... that album could have been a lot more, I think, 
Yeah. Monotheist, I think, needed someone like your touch because the drummer that they selected, yeah. and I think Tom's even hinted at it, the drummer that they selected might have been, I'm only talking about what I'm hearing, so I should say allegedly heard, I suppose, but uh, was responsible, I think, for the band breaking up ultimately and uh, tripped right. upon them becoming the thing. So someone, and, and I put that down to him not necessarily because it's someone whose name I can't recall now and I don't think I've heard of since. What He needed to work with a seasoned professional like yourself who got that sometimes you follow, sometimes you lead. And I think you understand that. Well, yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. And I'm a huge Frost fan too. You know, it would have been an absolute honour. But, um, you know, to be, you know, I don't have any regrets or hard feelings. I mean, to be to be even considered, you know, when there's so many killer drummers in the world, you know, to even, you know, be on a shortlist to do Triptychon, you know, mm. it, it's, it's an honour, you know. You know, I didn't get the gig, but hey, you know, it's still a great, there's still great records. Yeah, he's, I, I don't know what it is with, with, of course, you know, I've read a little bit that Tom's spoken about, talked about the very heavy cross that Celtic Frost is for him. But he's he seems to dip in and out of that outfit, doesn't he? Because the last, I bought it for a Christmas present for myself, ironically, the uh, Triptychon, um, I think it was with a Berlin Symphonic or a Dutch Symphonic Orchestra. Did you yeah. know the most recent yeah. album that he's? I can't remember the name, but sorry, the Roadburn, the Roadburn thing, Spot wasn't on. it? Yeah, you get, you get it. Yeah, and that's that's got a couple of Celtic songs on it, and I, uh, I don't know what it is that he has a he has a, a an odd relationship with Celtic Frost for a band that is probably the most important extreme metal band of all time. I've got to say, um, in terms of its influence, because I think it's influenced just about oh, every extreme metal band ever. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, there'd be no obituary or goat or without mm-hmm. uh frost that's for sure you know yeah, trevor well perez the... yeah <laughs> he's got that down oh. pat hasn't he that slow doomy riffing yeah oh yeah yeah we did you ever yeah. perform i know uh the tardy brothers are at the center of obituary but was there ever a moment where is it john tardy is on the drums or donald tardy i can't remember it's one of the two that Don- is donald. donald donald was there ever a moment where he called you up and said look i can't do this tour or this show could you step in because you, you could have done that one as well uh, no, but um, you know, I'm, I know Donald. He's a killer drummer. For mm. me, he's like the film of death metal. Definitely. You know, he's all groove. You know, rock solid fucking groove all the way. And um, you know, it's um, I've never been asked to drum for obituary, but I certainly wouldn't pass it up. You know, it, it was really yeah. interesting in Brisbane when they toured about a year and a half ago or so. It was probably yep. when I noticed that extreme metal had made the big jump and had become dad rock because there's people like myself, <laughs> you know, I've got two daughters That's... and, you know, I had to be home, you know, I was having a light beer and I looked around yeah. me and I thought, yeah. Jesus, everybody looks like me. You know, I've got a, you know, you and I got similar beards and, and we all sort of look similar, same sort of commitments, but here we are rocking out like it's 1991 all over again. <laughs> yeah. It was probably the yeah, moment that I noticed true. that it happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy when you think, yeah, that shit was like thirty years ago, you know. Like, you know, when you when when you when you look at the concept of time, thirty years ago. Okay, well, thirty years ago, thirty years ago would have been nineteen sixty. You know what I'm saying? I understand when you look exactly at how what you're saying. Yeah. When you look at how different music was in nineteen sixty to nineteen ninety, and then look at how music really hasn't changed that much from 1990 to now you know 
you, you see what I mean? It's crazy. I do. You know, like and I've thought about the same way. I thought exactly what you're saying. The big jumps from the '60s to the '90s, and then you go from the yeah. '90s to now. Yet the bands are virtually the same. Actually, you could even make a case for 1980 with Metallica. Metallica is still about yeah. the biggest band in the world. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I'd say. You know, um, if Pantera was still around, I think they would have given Metallica a run for their money. Now, that's—I was going to bring that up. I'd love to see you and Phil Anselmo do something together. I think Phil's fantastic, by the way. I've spoken to oh, him. And he, he, seen I, him I love him to bits. Yeah. yeah, I love him to bits. That every time he sees me, that that low, gravelly voice would Barker. <laughs> <laughs> But is that, is that a possibility? He's, I mean, he does so much stuff. Surely to goodness you can be enlisted to do something with him that way. I mean, you know, it's um, with, with, a lot, with a lot of musicians, you know, especially at festivals when we're all hanging out, because it's the only time you get to see all of your mates in all the other bands is when we, you play festivals mm-hmm. wherever. So it just turns into a massive piss-up, you know, and it, 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 everyone says, it's oh, we should do a band together sometime. Yeah, 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 that'd be killer. But very seldomly does anything come to fruition. And uh, I think Philip has said to me, like, you know, uh, I want some big boy drums happening sometime. I was mm. like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> you know, uh, You're the man. I mean, you know, all he's got to do is uh, hit me up and say, look, get your ass over to New Orleans and I'm there, <laughs> basically, you know. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mind Scour. Uh, I, I just I like the stuff he does that's got a bit of melody in it, which is why I like the Illegals project that he's got, which is by far and away yeah. the closest thing he's ever done to Pantera. He, he's got this thing yeah. where he wants to go quite um, gnarly and very grindy, and I think that's fine, but I think he's got a beautiful melodic voice, like Down, for example. You could have been in Down easily. You would have been perfect. I mean, did you see... Um did, did you see, have you seen the footage of him singing the Alice in Chains songs with Jerry yes, Cantrell? I have, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, wow. I mean, he's, he, yeah, he's he, he's up there. You know, he's, it's Philip Anselmo. You know, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't really a Pantera fan back in the early 90s because, you know, I was young and it was all about Norwegian black metal and West Coast hip hop for me. You know, West Coast hip hop. That's I've seen you in an NWA t-shirt. Yeah, well, um, for me, hip hop and metal. I've, I've, there's a parallel. Um, they're the two genres that um, scare the establishment the most, and they're the only two genres that really, you know, um, <laughs> they they kill each other over and shit. You know, it's hmm. the, I don't know anybody else that. You know, like you know, the murder thing, and you know the extremity. You know the lyrics. It's it's like for me, NWA are like the Slayer of hip hop. Yes. You know, it's uh, you know, like they were on the FBI's most wanted list. You know, at one point, and uh, yeah, it's and you'd be surprised too. A lot of the rappers, um, they're all like metalheads. Look, I and see. the same with a lot yeah. of, uh, yeah, a lot of metalheads are like really like banging to the hip hop, you know. Um, yeah, like uh, Garface from the Ghetto Boys, he's a huge metal fan. Um, he's come to gigs before when we played in Houston, and um, he, on even some of his solo records, um, there's a lot of um, references to metal. Uh, in one of his songs, he actually 
says the words screaming for vengeance, but he screams it like Rob Halford. Wow. You know, um, yeah. the bank, La Coca Nostra, um, which is Everlast, uh, Danny Boy, Ill Bill, they're all huge metalheads. Ill Bill, um, all of his all of his raps, they, they've all got like um, connotations to heavy metal songs, metal stuff. Hmm. You know, and uh, yes, it's it's a genre that I love. I mean, I, I love I love all kinds of music now. As I've got older, I mean, my palate's changed. You know, when I was a kid, it was all Norwegian black metal, West Coast hip hop. You know, <laughs> and now, I mean. I mean, I love The Cure, The Mission. I can listen to Elvis, mm. uh, The Eagles, Credence. Oh God, yeah, you know, yeah. good music's good music. It doesn't matter what genre it is. If it's good, it's good. I've had, yeah, it's it's a good point you raised there about hip-hop and, uh, and West Coast hip-hop in particular there because God knows I've tried. I just can't do it. And I've, and I've spoken about it quite a bit on the podcast with some artists. And uh, I've, uh, I was massively into body count when they came out particularly as i was a, yeah. I was a burgeoning guitarist at the time ernie c uh yeah ernie c's lines were probably the most complicated lines that i learned up to that point and i yeah. remember giving him that feedback ernie c couldn't believe that he, he was influencing young fellas in australia play the guitar but that was indeed the case but I think that yeah. there is, it's, I think it's just music of, from, it's a rebellious music. It's music of the outsider. It's, yeah, and it definitely. just depends on, on, you know, it's, I guess it's got a pretty bizarre parallel here, but it's just like, what, what do you like? Chocolate or vanilla <laughs> in terms of an ice cream flavor, yeah. but they're virtually the same yeah, thing, cool. if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, um, I think, I think what attracted me to hip hop was, is um, because it's drumbeat orientated. Everything evolves around the beats. Yes. And being yeah. a drummer, I just found that the the beats were so infectious, you know, and like when you know, when they started rhyming over it and you know, certain samples, you know, and um you know, a lot of them before the sampling became yeah, a copyright issue, so many hip hop bands in the late eighties, early nineties would use metal samples. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, um Public Enemy used the Angel of Death riff on She Watched Channel Zero mm-hmm. uh, because Rick Rubin produced the album and obviously his relationship with Slayer. You know, um, look at the Beastie Boys. License Led Hill. Zeppelin. Yep. Yeah, and um, Gary King plays the solos on a couple of songs. Well, actually, Rick Rubin was doing the Beastie Boys album in Studio B while he was doing Rain in Blood in Studio A. And that's how it came about. Like, hey, Kerry... Can you do a solo on this thing for me? So it was at this point that I needed to go and answer the door, which allowed Nick to go and get a glass of water. Then we got stuck back into things. Hey, mate, thanks a lot for that. Uh, the, the wonders of telepresent no and omni-channel communications technology make it feel like as though we were just in the room across the, the road from each other. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, no worries. It's all good. Oh, gosh. I got, my kids have got guinea pigs. And uh, yeah, two. I've got two daughters, five and seven, and we've been trying to get a cage, like a transport cage, for them for a while because we've got a place up north as well, and uh, we travel there between here and there. And uh, you, you can't put them in yeah. a shoebox. They're like, you know, they're yay big these days. They're like huge rodents. And they, um, yeah. and uh, but you can't buy these things in shops. Of course, we've got a. Don't know if you've been following what's going on, but uh, we've got this trade issue at the moment with China. 
So things. I think everybody's got trade trade issues with China, mate. <laughs> oh my god, it's uh, it's I think no. a lot of a lot of nervous people in Australia at the moment actually because the CCP are a pack of cunts. We know that, but uh, a lot of Australian industry relies on them. You know, to to be able to import yeah. into that market. You know. Well, it's the same here, mate. Um, there's a lot of Chinese money on in the UK. You know, um. All of the inner city developments, all these new skyscrapers going up, most of it's Chinese money. Chinese or Russian. Russian, yeah. You guys get a lot of that, don't you? There's a shitload of Polish and Ukraine and, and Russians in, in yeah. UK these days, isn't there? Yeah, especially Polish. Um, you know, I've got a few Polish mates here. I think they're good lads. <laughs> They look. Yeah. They like a drink. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Yeah, we 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 got an established Polish community here that came here after World War Two, so they're like third or right. fourth generation removed now. But they never quite leave the Polish thing, if you know what I'm saying. It's not like uh, no. you know, we're yeah. a lot of a lot of Brits. I mean, you got Brits that are here that were, were like you know the young family that basically ditch it and they just become Australian straight away. But a lot of the Eastern Europeans, like my, mate, you know, I my do wife's, the same, mate. If I could get an Aussie passport, fucking yeah, take the British one. It's fucking shit. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd 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 love to I'd love to live and work in Australia. Why don't you do it then? Is there anything preventing you from? Oh, kids, uh, of course, family. Um, no, because my kids are grown up now, and I live alone. I'm divorced. Um, but um, you see, all I do is music. I've I've done this my entire adult professional life, so. You know, whatever transferable skills as there is there, you know, I've got no work work experience in any other industry, and because of Australia's kind of geographically challenged, if you like, um, mm. you know, it, it, it you know, it's going to Europe's so far away. Like, whereas here, Europe's pretty much my backyard. Yeah, you I know, get what like, you're saying. I, yeah, yeah. I, I can be in the states in like six hours. You know, yeah. I, look, I I only started traveling uh, as an adult. I didn't. I mean, it was the airline tickets back in the eighties and early nineties were ex exorbitant to fly out of Australia. So consequently, we, yeah. we 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 used to go to Fiji and New Caledonia. Used to go to New Caledonia a bit with my grandparents. Oh, lovely. Um, I mean, I mean, God. To be honest with you, why else would you need to go anywhere else if you've got these places on your doorstep? And I mean, it was, but it was kind of strange because you go to these places and they look like home. They just had different people there. Yeah. <laughs> so he'd be yeah, like, yeah. Uh, it was, you know, semi-tropical, subtropical or what have you. And yeah. sometimes they were just, and, and with all due respect to New Caledonia, New Mia is just a dirtier version of almost any Australian small town. Um, <laughs> if you ever go there, you know, with the, uh, the good old French influence there. But yeah, it was only as an adult that I started traveling a lot. And holy shit, yeah, I don't, I've not, not, not got a fear of flying. I just hate being stuck in a metal tube for 18 hours at a time, which is basically what you are when you fly out of Australia to Europe and the US. Yeah. Um, well, see, I'm, I'm fucking, I'm, I've got um, a phobia of heights. Uh, it, it's weird. Like, um, I can't, I can't go out on a, onto a balcony, say like in a hotel mm. and look over the edge. It, it I'll feel nauseous. It feels like somebody's going to push me or I'm going to jump. But, I have to sit by the window on a plane. It's crazy. That's you know, I feel safer. Yeah. I feel safer sat in the plane looking 10,000 feet, 20,000 feet down than what I do looking over the edge of a balcony, say, 
22 stories up. I'm exactly the same way. I've got to share that with you because I hate heights. You know, I can't. As soon as you get about 25 yeah. meters up on a balcony with me, I'm sort of arms out, looking over the edge, and my wife's and my wife's going, "Stopping a dickhead," you know. It's like, no, serious. I don't. I don't like this. Yeah. And airplanes, yeah. Mate, the first fourth rung on the ladder, I'm getting vertigo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we all have no. our things, man. Yeah, I mean, you can't help our character yeah. types. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to move to Australia. It, it's it's a pipe dream, you know. Um, but I'd have to meet uh, some uh, some desperate Aussie lady that would want to marry me. <laughs> so I, I I wouldn't be eligible just to. Hi, it's Barker. I'm here now. You know, it's something like that. there's quite but a few. There's quite a few Britain American musicians who live down here very quietly. Like, I, I, you might have known that the Chili Peppers guys were living down here, but Flea is Australian. Yeah. People just don't realise that. But he's he's actually a, a born and bred Aussie. Um, really? I didn't know that. I thought he was California. No, he's he's got this massive California, you know, thing going on, has the image going on. But no, his whole family, I think, is yeah. in Melbourne, Melbourne or Canberra, one of the two. Right. And I, I had mates that used to go down to a place called Ulla Dulla and they'd be walking along and, oh, there's Flea, you know, and uh, or Michael yeah. Bob- Balzari as he's known to his family. Um, there's, there's just down the road from me here in Byron Bay, it's, you know, it's about 150 kilometers away, but Northern New South Wales, for whatever reason, the Hollywood elite have decided that they want to live there. So Orlando Bloom to, I know the Hemsworths are Australian anyway, but a lot of these American, what's, um, uh, the, the Swan woman, Natalie Portman. I think she's there yeah. these days as well. I mean, this is what you hear and people sort of are like, oh, they were just in here the other day, this sort of thing. It's like, whoa, what the hell are they doing here? But I think I think we're just far enough away from the bullshit, but still like we're far enough away physically from the bullshit, yeah. but still connected to the Western Hemisphere, still part of the Western Hemisphere that yes. you can sort of yeah. feel you can sort of feel connected, but at the same time, if you want to go off the grid, you can. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's weird that the, all the Hollywood are moving down under now then because... You know, well, I guess the US is fucked. I mean, you know, I think that's what's happening, brother. Yeah, that's the problem, yeah. man. Is yeah, I know where a lot of people in California are getting the fuck out of California. I was going to mention because, that. Yeah, it's too expensive. You know, it's absolutely. You know, and the thing now they're all moving down there. It's going to jack up all your prices. You know, rent and everything all around the area where they're at. It's going to be out of, out of the fucking roof. You know, it's. Yeah. Terrible. I mean, you know, ordinary. It's getting harder and harder for people like us to live. You know, it's and, Sydney, um, and Sydney and Melbourne have gone. As far as I'm concerned, they're both just yeah, shitholes. Yeah, yeah. And if you go, I mean, I'm sure they're lovely if you visit them. But trying to live in either of those two cities, mate, I, I can't tell the difference between them and Los Angeles these days. To be honest, man, they're yeah. they're just I big love shitty Melbourne. places. Sydney, you know, eh, I can take all the, but yeah, Melbourne is. My spot, if I had to have one. But, um, but even even like Melbourne's Perth. changing. Yeah, Perth is fantastic. I, I, I've I, got to I say, like preface, I've never been there, but I've spoken to so many musicians from over there that there's Brisbane, Adelaide, and Perth are what I call fairly normal. Yeah. Like you know, like the, you can sort of get by. Sydney and Melbourne, yeah. you better have better have a million dollars or thereabouts behind you. Otherwise, you're living in the boonies somewhere and commuting, you know, 80, 90 kilometers into the CBD for your job. Sure. You know. It's pretty much the same, mate. You know, where all the major cities—London, Birmingham, Manchester—you know, it's all fucked everywhere. Well, Birmingham's. Gosh, I can't tell you the amount of Brits that are from Birmingham that live live here on the Gold Coast, man. There's a 
there's a enough yeah. for many many supporter soccer buses if you know what I'm saying, uh, or you <laughs> yeah. know Wolverhampton or what have you is the team up that way. Yeah. But, um, but there's there is a shit ton of man. The stories that I'm hearing coming out of Birmingham aren't pleasant. Oh yeah, it's it's horrible. It's a fucking cesspool, hmm. you know. And it's, it's yeah, it's it's just life in the inner cities, I guess, isn't it? You know, if I, you know, if I get a lottery win, I'm coming down to Oz and just gonna buy a ranch. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we'd welcome well, we, you, mate. You know, we welcome mate, you. If you need a sponsor, you know who to contact. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, mate. Look, I'll, I'll wrap things up. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your candor and your frankness and your willingness to uh, have a conversation about things that are very important to me as a fan. And for people that are going to listen to this, man, I, I don't know how many... Look, I'll, I'll leave it. It's all and, good, mate. You know. It's all good. I mean, you know, um, you know, some people might say, oh, you know, it's not cool airing dirty laundry, but it's not really dirty laundry. I've not yes. even scratched the surface. You know, um, I think genuine fans, they, they need to hear this, you know, because... It needs to be spoken about. People need to know, you know, what happened and why things are how they are. I'm serious you about know? writing that book as well. I'm very passionate about the topic, as you can tell. And and, and I think yourself, yeah. the, th- the three of you, man, are just so integral to not just extreme metal and not just heavy metal, but music in general. Because they're a cradle yeah. of filth. There are people who listen to those albums that then made make make decisions that go on to... They make decisions that then mean that they go on to become classical musicians, and they, they, they have yeah. careers that way. That's how important I think some of that work is, man. And uh, and, and writing a book and, and, you know, and I'm with you, man. It's not dirty laundry, you know why? Because it's your truth. It's, it's, it's your lived experience. And that's not dirty laundry, man. That's just you and explaining your truth, perspective you know, on things. Yeah, and it is the truth. Les and Stuart will back me up 100% on this. You know, Stuart, because they, they, yeah. Well, Stuart went into a lot of detail, uh, and that's what fans love, man. People love hearing the detail, and they want to know because the music is so meaningful to them. And uh, you know, eventually, I'll, I'll within twelve months, man, I'll reach out to you all because I'm, I'm yeah, on that path mate. to doing it now. You're more than welcome to hit me up any time, mate. It's, it's be a pleasure. Yeah, well, mate, it, it sounds like you're comfortable with everything we're talking about, so I'm just going to release it basically as it is in context so as that people can, you know, people love listening to these. You know what people are like with podcasts, man. They just put yeah. on their headphones. Mate, and... mate I, listen, I listen to them all the time. I'm I'm a Joe Rogan podcast freak. Likewise. You know. Love Joe, man. How, how have you coped with the transition to Spotify? Because I wasn't even on Spotify before. <laughs> no, um, well, see, I'm not on Spotify. I watch... I watch all of his old podcasts on YouTube. Uh-huh. Still, yeah. Uh, you know, um, see, I'm I'm not a Spotify guy. I'm I'm iTunes, which just because I, I I use Apple products and whatever. Yes, I mean, um, yeah. yeah, so you know, Spotify. I mean, iTunes, Spotify. I guess it's the same thing, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it Stream, is. I think. Uh, I just, I mean, the Apple are definitely the evil empire too. They're not any better than Spotify, but there's just something disingenuous about Spotify that I can't get my head around. You know, like yeah, the the CEO was right. He was right in saying that musicians need, need to effectively become social media stars, but I hate that. <laughs> it's you know yeah, but at the same time, it's like you know, pay them, pay what, pay what, pay what we do. Yeah, you know, it's like. You, you wouldn't. You, he wouldn't be sitting in his multi-million-dollar house if it wasn't for us mm-hmm. making the music. Absolutely. You know. So how about some of that love trickles down to the the people that made you who you are? 
you know. Agreed. But I know the changes. Is, yeah, you have to be. You know, every musician, you've got to be a social media star these days, and that's kind of where a lot of my friends, uh, musicians, peers, tell me, you know, that's where I'm going wrong. But you've got to be more of a fucking social media whore, you know. You, you, you know, you need to, like, quadruple the likes. You know, it's all about likes and shares, and, you know, it's... I'm old school, mate, you know what I mean? <laughs> you I'm know, but... Um, yeah. You know, uh, my kids are always telling me, "Oh, you, you should, you should be way more bigger on on social media than what you are, and you you, you sell yourself short, Dad, and blah blah blah." And, and basically, I need someone, a babysitter, to like, look, let me handle it all. I'll handle the content. You just tell me what you what you want and this and that, and I'll tell you what to do and blah blah. I think that's probably the way to go for me. Oh yeah, it's but the thing that I love about you, man, is you're authentic. You're the real deal. You're the genuine article. And a lot of shit on social media is just hot air and bullshit. And you, you absolutely yeah. like me, mate. Like I, God, I think I, I, I get. I'm, this is no boast, but I've got hundreds of thousands of listeners to the podcast, but I have got fuck That's all great. social media engagement. So there's a disc. You yeah. understand that, like you, man. Like you're the same way. Like you've got literally millions of people have bought the albums you've appeared on. Yeah, your social yeah. media appearance might not be as big as, say, I don't know, Lil Bow well, Wow or whatever. I've got, <laughs> got 4,000 followers on Instagram. That's a lot more than you me, know. man. <laughs> but, oh, no, I, I look at some guys and like, how come he's got fucking 25,000? You know, what's the secret? But um, if, if all your podcast listeners want to uh, hook up on my Instagram, it's official Nicholas Barker drummer. It is. You've got a good stream. I like it too. As I say, it's authentic. Uh, for people like myself who, who don't like the fluff and don't like the product placement and all the rest of it, just want a bit of an insight into your day-to-day. You give you give us that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, you've got to do what you've got to do, haven't you? <laughs> you know? Indeed. So, look, I'll release this as it is, mate, um, in good faith, mate. I'll just oh, do mate, that. Cool. I don't edit, you know, but I'll um, I'll reach out to yourself and I'll, I've got to reach out to Stuart again in the near future, actually. We do occasionally communicate uh, with each other, but the next person I've got to talk to is Les. So I've got to get him on, man, because uh, he's uh, I know he's a busy guy and he was only here recently. He was here with Paradise Lost recently. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I didn't yeah, catch up with uh, him. Yeah, I just, I was, you know, you get you, you get busy and then you think, I'll go to that show and then I didn't go to the show, which meant that I couldn't catch up with him. And Greg was actually going to hook me up. You know, Greg McIntosh was going to yeah, link yeah. me up and, and I thought, well, I, sh- I should have done it, but it was just, fuck, it's one of those things. I think I had uni on the next day or something and thought, no, I won't. I won't, won't sort of get well, too... <laughs> feel, feel free to hit him up, mate. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure he'd love to talk to you. You know, um, get his side of the story out there because, you know, like I say, you know, people want to hear it and, you know. <laughs> they, they do, man. And, and look, this book, once it gets out there, man, it, it's, it can be, you know, it'll be the thing that I think sets the record straight, okay? Because to your point right. earlier, <laughs> you know, the Marilyn Manson version of Cradle of Filth is just shit and I never got yeah. in. As soon as I heard Midian, I was like, that's it, I'm done. I knew I could tell. I could knew straight away that without you guys there, that was the reason it was garbage. And yeah, and there's a ton of people out there like me, man. It's not like I'm just this voice in the wilderness, like I said earlier, you know. And and having a book out there that I think actually has your perspective and talks through the process of writing the songs, and and even going back in your case to Principle of Evil, people want that, mate. That's you know, people want to hear this shit. They want to know. Yeah. You know what I'll do? Then I'll uh, I'll. 
I'll go through all my old fucking stash of archive stuff. I've got a treasure trunk, like literally full of photographs. Oh man, uh, man. So I'll go through and I'll, uh, yeah. If you're serious about the book, I'll I'll get some cool photographs for you. You are literally. I'm writing. I've got. I'm writing my podcast memoir, which of course you aren't. You are. You are in it anyway. But certainly, this conversation will feature in it. I'll just include it in my seven thousand uh, word entry that I've already done on Cradle of Filth. Um, but um, I've got. A, I'm writing a, a Hare Krishna devotee's biography. Uh, who is, is cool. the guy? He's a t- what we call a ten pound palm. So uh, he's one of these uh, Brits that came out to Australia on the uh, the SS Australia or Australis, I think it was. Yeah. His father and and uh, he taught Prince Charles how to surf. This guy. Brilliant. Um, so I'm you writing. Know, his... Only it was like <laughs> only it was ten for the comments to get over there now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, indeed, yeah, indeed. But um, look, I'm writing his. I'm writing his uh, in the city. Actually, I've got a placement with the state library, so I'll be in there doing that. But after that, man, it's you guys. That's it. Brilliant. Because oh, I know what will happen, man, is I'm trying to be – instead of going into news media, doing that, I'm doing yeah. I'm being an author. So, But I'm doing passion projects first up because that's how I think – to be honest with you, I think that's how I'll establish my name. But it's a very authentic way, I think, of doing it because these are stories that need to be told. Yeah. Great. So, cool. But, mate, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate all the time. But let's, please, let's stay in touch and let's just chat in the near future, yeah. Mate, the pleasure's been all mine. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute honour. Wonderful. All right, well, we'll chat soon. <laughs> all right, mate, you take care. No worries, brother. Okay, talk to you. Okay. Right. Right, Later. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online, and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. That interview subject was none other than extreme metal drum leviathan Nick Barker. Thanks so much for listening.